Richardson. Stopped by Platt. Here's Steve Bold. And it's Adams. Put through by Bold. Would you believe it? That sums it all up. Hello and welcome back to another episode of That Sums It All Up. Great to have you all here with us today. We've got an exciting show lined up. Feels like an apt time to take stock, assess where Arsenal are in their process and look ahead to the final stretch of the season. There's also no football really going on at the moment apart from a few AFCON games and we'll touch upon those. But we will begin with a little discussion about Burnley, get onto some transfer news and yeah, we're going to have a good chat today. So who better to join me today than Johnny? And I'm also delighted to announce, announce, sounds like I'm announcing a transfer, to welcome on uh, James Goldwood onto the podcast. James is the current sports editor of Metro.co.uk, having previously worked for the likes of Goal and had bylines in every major news national newspaper. He's been an Arsenal sports for 35 years and his favourite Arsenal players are the likes of Ian Wright, David Seaman and Thierry Henry. James, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are we? Uh, busy, very busy. January is, well, following on from what is always a pretty hectic uh, December with, you know, non-stop, non-stop fixtures over the, the festive period. Then going into January where you know, the transfer window basically dominates. Um, but obviously, you know, being a all in well, trying to be an all-encompassing sports section. We've had the Australian Open, which has been crazy, all the fallout from the Novak Djokovic stuff, uh, the end of an Ashes series, which obviously has been an absolute disaster as well. Um, and, you know, building up to the Winter Olympics um, and beyond, it's just, it's just non-stop. Every time you think you've got a moment to breathe in this, this job, something else comes along or there's another story that you weren't expecting. It's, it's just, it's just relentless, but in a good way, in a good way, I'd say. Yeah. Keep, keep yourself busy. I mean, while we're on that, James, it would be great. You've sort of mentioned a few things that, that you do at the moment. So would you, would you mind telling us just a bit about the sort of work that you've been doing and how you got into this, this line of work and um, yeah, I guess just give your sort of general outline for, Sure, I'd say. Well, for, for starters, like most sports journalists, you obviously start off with a with a passion for sport and maybe some delusions of grandeur that you might one day become a professional footballer. Um, but that was obviously not going to happen. That was uh, made abundantly clear uh, in my teenage years. And then I just thought the most natural thing to pursue after that was was sports journalism. Um, I started off actually working at the Racing Post in uh, uh, sort of the sports betting sector but wanted to go down you know the route being a more conventional journalist um went down the reporter route uh covered several london clubs for a couple of years um but i guess uh i don't know, I don't know why i sort of veered away from that really i think we'll touch on that a bit maybe a bit later talking about trying to combine supporting arsenal with it being a journalist mm. um which has its own its own challenges, um, and then got into a more of an editorial role, more of a more of a management role, um, and yeah. So so Metro been there for five and a half years now, built that section up pretty much from from scratch to what it is now. Basically, when I took over, it was it was essentially a section that literally pretty much just regurgitated transfer news mm. um, elsewhere. Um, and slowly but surely, we've we've added to that. We cover uh, a range of sports in depth now, from cricket, uh, tennis, 
uh, even snooker and darts now, which not a lot of national news, newspapers or national national science cover. And we've, we've we've built up a real big audience around around those sports. But it's a it's a relentless, as I said before, relentless line of work. <laughs> no, I, I remember you know uh, I have fond memories of reading the Metro um, back at school days, and I do remember a few years ago, or like as you say, five years ago, probably before you started working on things. It's kind of just like you get all your all your transfer news uh, in one place, all your strap lines, all your sort of regurgitated information. So great to hear that sort of there's a lot more breadth and variety to to the sort of work that you're doing at the moment. I think it's really interesting to touch upon the the idea of combining profession and and fandom um, because you, of course, are a big Arsenal fan and you also you know edit the sports section of of the Metro. So. Yeah, do you want to just touch upon you know so, some of those things that you were mentioning just before about how maybe your career has been shaped by your by your Arsenal fandom, I guess. Yeah, I guess um, you know the first couple of years where I, where I sort of broke into it and you were sort of you know obviously got this in, intense passion for Arsenal and the chance to to cover the club, write about the club relentlessly, sit around a table discussing things with Arsene Wenger, oh. you know, just absolute. Career highlight. I always remember one one um, press conference where uh, after the the broadcast journalists get time uh, to ask our same questions, then the daily newspapers had like a breakout sec- section which wasn't filmed, and you could sit and chat about things more generally. And we were talking about various things, and I I, I made a point to him. I can't even remember what it was about now. I think it was something to do with how competitive the league had become compared to what it was ten years ago. And he just turned to me and pointed at me and said, you make a very good point. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is just vindication of everything, basically. You know, where else could I, could I, could I get this from any other walk of life? Um, and so, yeah, for the first couple of years, it, it, was, it was brilliant, what, you know, watching and report, reporting on the club, going to matches, speaking to, to Arsene. Um, but it is quite a relentless thing and it is, a, it is almost like a conveyor belt and you feel like you're doing the same thing um, Almost, almost over and over again, and you kind of lose that passion as as a fan, mm. um, and you find that you can't really celebrate the high moments, and also it's difficult to experience the low moments where you're trying to ma- maintain a, <clears throat> excuse me, a professional a professional air. I think there, uh, there's one moment in particular that kind of crystallised that for me. It was the um, it was 2011, uh, it would have been the Carling Cup final then. Oh, God. And I was, I think I was, re- I was writing a report on the match ratings and my seat in the press box was right at the very, the very end of the press box, ne- directly next to the Birmingham fans. So I'm there trying to like put a match report together and I was on deadline and this, that and the other. And all of a sudden, Koscielny and Chesney bump into each other. Martin scores the winning goal. And um, yeah, the Birmingham fans are obviously going absolutely insane. And I'm looking at this thinking this is the worst, worst thing ever. I remember literally taking my laptop, unplugging it, going into the press room and sort of finishing everything away from all the distractions of elsewhere. And just thinking, I can't, I can't carry on doing this. And then I remember going down, had to go down to what they call the mix zone, where you try and get a player afterwards. Literally all the Arsenal players just walk through with their headphones on, mm-hmm. you know, and you're just like, no, yeah. no, I need a, I'm, I, I need something different after this. It was almost, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back type thing. And from that, I went into, yeah, more of an, ed- an editing role. Um, 
you know, commissioning work, managing other journalists, um, talking to them about their work, trying to develop their stories, their own contacts and stuff like that. And I found that as as enjoyable, if not more, more so than the than the reporting role. That, I mean, that sounds great. And I think combination of of those kind of roles is uh, has probably provided you with a brilliant amount of experience. I mean, the the idea that you're sat around a table with Arsene Wenger, as I'm sure Johnny will will share that feeling of me is just like disbelief of how amazing that must have been just to sort of <laughs> dream. <laughs> yeah. The dream, like you don't get much better than that. And um, that's really great to sort of hear about your trajectory and your uh, personal experience through that as well. So um, yeah, thank you for, for sharing some of that for us. And then, I mean, your Arsenal, your relationship with Arsenal then it's, I mean, where, where, where is it now? Um, would you say <laughs> in, in a, in a not, not a loaded question, but just in terms of how it's evolved in, in terms of your work as well? Um, I don't know. Well, obviously, it sounds ridiculous now to say that I've been a fan for 35 years. I mean, that's an incredible <laughs> long, long stretch of time for anything, really. Um, so obviously, I've seen huge, huge changes over, over that period. Um, but I guess at its core, the club is still the same. And I think um, that's one of the things that I'm most on board with in terms of the current regime, that outwardly at least, mm. they do seem to have the club's core values at, at heart. You know, they're, they're quite innovative. You know, they're, they're strongly committed to bringing through players from the academy, all the best sides that I've watched over the last 35 years um, have had that element to them um and just in terms of the personalities of the people involved and the players that they're they're bringing through now i think one of the hardest things supporting arsenal certainly over the last well the latter stages of wenger's reign and over unai emery's reign was that a lot of the players just weren't particularly likable um and i think that's something that arteta has really sort of focused on over the last year in particular the personality commitment to the cause uh, and, and just a, a passion for Arsenal is, is absolutely fundamental if we're going to if we're going to move this club forward and take it back to where where it was so now if we have a if we have a bad result you know sun, Sunday was not a good result we'll talk about that I'm sure um, but you couldn't fault them for effort I don't think I don't think you know the crowd that was quite interesting actually the, the crowd it, it didn't turn during the game I mean there was there was frustration yes but it certainly wasn't the sort of levels of toxicity that that have been apparent over the last over the last couple of years so yeah that, that's if anything despite the fact that we're nowhere near as successful as we as we have been I'm actually feeling closer to the club over the last certainly six months or so than I have been for, for any uh, any period in the in the recent recent mm-hmm. past um, having said that you know the way that they behaved uh, over the Super League and even the cancellation of the uh, of the derby recently, it shows you know really that they can be as cynical and self centred uh, as any other as any of the other clubs and any of our, our sort of competitors. And I guess you've got to be like that if you if you want to compete with you know the likes of Chelsea, City, mm. and, and Liverpool to a certain extent, really. 
Yeah, definitely. You, you raised you raised Burnley there, and I think it's a it's an apt time to bring Johnny in so he can give us some of his uh, some of the some of his thoughts. Uh, Johnny, am I right in thinking that you were you were intending to go to the game on Sunday? But I mean, I guess fortunately for you, you didn't go in the end. Yeah, I feel like I dodged a bullet, unlike unlike James, who was there, but I think had an interesting experience. I yeah, I was planning on going. I haven't actually been to a game for quite a while. I think the last game I went to was the Villa game at home when we won 3-1. Played very mm. well in that game, actually. I sort of managed to find some sort of stream online, uh, which just kept cutting out. So after 70 minutes, I, I just gave up and was sort of... what You can't really watch it through Twitter, but you get what I'm saying when mm. I say that. I was just sort of keeping up to date with the, with the play-by-play through, through Twitter. Ah, it didn't sound like a good game. Yeah, anything. I didn't. Man, the stream I was watching was very glitchy, and so I couldn't get a real flow for things. But I've seen the highlights, and we just didn't create too much. I guess breaking Burnley down is always difficult, especially when they go away from home. They're good in the box, and I think what was it Ramsdale said? It was like meat and drink for them. The way we were just lobbing crosses in there, and Ben, me, and Tarkovsky are always, always going to deal with that. I'm sure we'll get on to a few chances we had. I think the Lacazette one stood out to me as the the best chance we had. And obviously, with Aubameyang being left out of the trip to Dubai, it seemed like the ship's completely sailed on him being reintegrated into the squad. So signing a centre-forward within the next sort of four days has to be, if not urgent, I don't know what you would describe it as, but um, we, we do need that quite pressingly because goals are a big issue and they have been now for the best part of two years. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts were on the game, get on the game, James, as you uh, as you watched it live. Yeah, I suppose similar to what you 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 saw on your glitchy screen. But yeah. I wasn't overly surprised by the performance. I kind of thought we were we were running on empty mm. as it was. We'd obviously put in a lot of effort to no avail against Liverpool a couple of days earlier. Um, and we were forced pretty much to pick pick the same team. You knew how Burnley were going to play, and you just know against Burnley if you don't get an early goal, they're just going to they're just going to sit in, and you've got to work incredibly hard to break them down. Unfortunately, like you say, without without a top class centre forward, that's always going to be going to be difficult. I think the one one of my major criticisms of Arteta is the fact that. We play the same, no matter what the situation is in the game. We're very structured, very regimented. There's very little sort of off-the-cuff innovation within a game, even to the extent where, you know, you think maybe, why don't why couldn't Saka and Martinelli swap wings for 10 minutes? Or why not put uh, Lacazette into more of a number 10 role? play Martinelli through the middle or, you know, during the latter stages of a game, why not play it, put an attacking player at fullback and another winger on or something like that. He's just very, this is the way we're going to play. This is the way we're going to try and score our goals. And if it doesn't happen, there's no, there's no plan B. And I think you need, you know, as much as I admire what he's trying to instill in the team and the way he wants us to play, you have to have a plan B, um, particularly against that sort of disciplined opposition. Um, and after a while, it was just it was just like banging our head against a, a brick wall, and the, the onus really does fall on one one or two players. You know, I, felt, I did feel sorry for Saka, who must have been fouled about ten times during that game. Mm. He's played almost every minute so far this season. 
off the back of the Euros as well. So, yeah, it it, it wasn't great, and that, that I'll say that is, that is my main criticism of Arteta: the sort of the regimented style and no no innovation within within games. Mm. I think it's interesting to observe the reaction among the Arsenal community from this one because you know I, I managed to watch the game and it was a it was a an intense feeling of frustration when the full time whistle went because I knew that it was going to be tight. We definitely could have won it with you know a couple of those chances being put away, but ultimately our know, lack of quality and lack of squad depth in the end kind of let us down. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, it wasn't one of the worst performances that I've seen, especially under uh, Mikel Arteta. But I think I was looking uh, back at the recent results against Burnley and we managed to beat them earlier in the season. We beat them 1-0 with a Martin Odegaard free kick. But, you know, our previous three, I think, before that or something, we failed to beat them. We scored one or two goals against them, a couple of draws, a loss. So we haven't fared that well against them of late. And I guess this was painful and frustrating because it just reminded us that we're not quite there yet. And yeah, it, it was frustrating and, and points dropped. And, you know, especially in, in a week where Tottenham and Manchester United were winning, getting late winners and the just the, the sort of, yeah, very contrasting feelings, I think, from from them being able to bring on, you know, experienced squad options to win the game, and then Arsenal bringing on Eddie and Ketia, and and I'm not an anti anti Eddie and Ketia kind of guy, but you know, it's starting to become more and more obvious that he's just really not up to it. And I think people have known that for a long time, but yeah, Burnley did what they do, and they did it quite well. We didn't have much more to offer, and I think you're right, James, to say that we were sort of running on empty. What what was the what was the atmosphere like come the end of the game? Because I remember at one point, I mean, even from my watching at home, I could feel that it felt like there was a goal coming, and and I was, you know, sort of behaving as if I was in the crowd. I was really getting behind the team. I felt that momentum kind of switch, and then after, I think it, I think it might have been that Lacazette chance or, or similar sort of moment. It just kind of like it became clear that we weren't gonna we weren't gonna get anything from the game. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's, it was the first time I've been to the Emirates for, for a long time. Um, and Arteta spoke quite a lot recently about the atmosphere and just the feeling of positivity within within the stadium, which obviously hasn't been there for, for at least at least two seasons. And how much of that is down to the fact that obviously we've been denied the opportunity to go to games because of COVID. I think there's a lot of kind of novelty factor. People are enjoying just going to the games at the moment because, because they can. But it definitely, like certainly to start with, it was as good a, good an atmosphere for an early Sunday afternoon kickoff as I, I can remember for a, for a long time. And there wasn't this, you know, like I mentioned before, the toxicity that has been there in recent seasons. People really were willing willing the team on, and any any frustration up until sort of ten minutes to go really was directed at Burnley for their, you know gamesmanship, their time wasting. I mean, Nick Pope was literally wasting time from about, you know, half, from half an hour onwards, you know, doing the old moving the ball from one side of the six-yard box to the other. You know, people just imploring the referee to do something about it. I mean, how they only got four minutes of... Not that it would have made any difference. I think we could still be playing now and we probably wouldn't have scored. But how they only managed to get four minutes of injury, injury time was slightly perplexing. But yeah. the, the crowd largely st- stayed with, with the team throughout, I'd say... Um, but obviously, like you say, it's, it's 
it's two points drop. But in the in the grand scheme of things, especially I, I don't think we had ever had any chance of catching Chelsea, despite the fact that they've not been having a great time of it at the moment. But given day one, Tottenham drop points. If you if you look at the league table now and the fixtures that we've got left remaining, you probably would have taken this situation at this stage this stage of the season, I think. I would agree with that. Yeah, I think looking at it. You probably need to get top four. You probably need ten wins and maybe three draws from our remaining our remaining games, and it might not even be as much as as much as that. Do you think it? I I would think it might be. Well, I look at our remaining fixtures and I think we've got how many games have we played? Twenty one games, I believe now. So seventeen left. I sort of think we need to win at least twelve of those games to guarantee it. I do. I can see one of these teams, whether it's Spurs under Conte, especially if they get a few players in, going on some sort of run. But I just wanted to touch on, you were speaking about the atmosphere and I wanted to kind of corroborate that and say, I went to the Norwich game where we won 1-0 and Aubameyang scored. And I don't know if you were there that day, James, but the atmosphere was amazing at that game. And obviously we were, we were off the back of three quite humiliating defeats and we were sitting rock bottom in the league and the crowd the, like, the crowd just didn't stop chanting the ground was shaking and look, the Emirates hasn't exactly been known for having the best atmosphere since it was built but actually I thought that game really has set a precedent for how the atmosphere has been this season and look, there are standouts like the North London Derby win was the obvious example of where it was just really electric but in general, I think the fan atmosphere and the, the lack of toxicity has been really positive and something that Arteta deserves some credit for because, you know, the Emirates wasn't a fun place to be under Emery in, in those latter days of, of Wenger. So the way that sort of turned and the players have bought into it, you know, Ramsdale specifically is, is great when it comes to geeing up the crowd. But it's just so important sort of having like a healthy, happy football club, even if you're not super successful on the pitch and you're not winning titles and in the Champions League, it really makes a big difference. So, yeah, just was sort of feeding off of that. It was really good to see. Yeah, I think that's it's a huge thing that Arsenal have suffered from in, in, in recent years. And you look at all the other teams in, you know, well, most, most of the grounds in the Premier League these days, like they're tough places to go. Mm. Um, you know, Chelsea's never, never nice. Old Trafford for a, for a big game. You always know the crowd, crowd are going to be up for it. Dare I say Tottenham? You always you know for a big game, especially since they've moved in, moved into the new stadium as well. And I think that's something that Arsenal have re- really suffered from in, in recent years. And the, the, the need to make the Emirates an intimidating place to go again is is going to be vital again if we're going to kick on and, and, and progress. I was just going to say there, like I think in largely, you know, it was strange to see. I mean, not strange. It was very painful to see our home form last season, you know, with no crowds. And, you know, I think it was the worst, the worst record we'd have, we'd had in a, in a home season and and lost a copious amount of games and the performances were abject and, you know, we weren't scoring, we weren't doing anything right. And this season, you know, even with a couple of draws, we've largely been pretty good at home. And I think that cultivating that atmosphere as well, that, that connection, that, sort of alignment between fans and and players and Arteta and you know James you said at the beginning of the show you know this is 
for the, the first time in a while that you've been feeling as positive as you have been about the club. And look, it's not it's not perfect on the pitch. We saw that against Burnley, but I think it's a real for, for Arsenal fans especially. It's maybe not easy easy to explain to other football fans who kind of you know I was talking to a Spurs fan the other week and he was sort of just saying like. Yeah, but what's the Arteta end game? Like, where's it going? Like, when do you just call it quits? And I was just like, well, you know, if you're an Arsenal fan and, and, and you feel it, you feel that things are in an objectively kind of better place in terms of, like you were touching upon, Johnny, the atmosphere, the that being a sort of healthier club, a, a better run club, one that you can sort of enjoy engaging with because before it was, it was, it had gone down the wrong path. And I have faith you know, eternal optimist that Mikel Artes is the right guy and we've got the young players and, and we're going to, you know, we're on the right path and there are people who maybe aren't so optimistic and and um, trust the process as much as I do. But yeah, I think those sorts of issues are really important to consider. I don't know if you had anything to add, Johnny, on that. No, I was I was sort of found it funny. I can't, with the Spurs fan you're speaking to, asking where's the Arteta in? sort of movement going. And I always find these movements when it comes to managers, and this is going off on a tangent a bit, slightly futile because every manager ends up basically getting fired, you know, unless you're Sir Alex Ferguson. So whether you're, you know, Arteta in, it's not really going to get you anywhere because Arteta will be fired at some point, whether it's at the end of this season or at the end of next season or the season after. He's eventually going to step away. And so the people that are doubting him will always be proven right. At some point, I say, ah, it was the time. But it's, and I remember Gunnerblog raising this point, I think, on Twitter after we beat Norwich 5 0 on Boxing Day and just saying, this is a moment for those who have backed Arteta that, you know, a bit of patience and understanding of to, and, and looking at what he's really trying to do has paid off. And, and at that point, we were sort of in a slightly better place than we are now. But, but I think the general thing is with football clubs, the mood is so volatile and can swing from high highs to low lows in a matter of weeks that holding such a binary in or out stance when it comes to such a significant individual like a manager, it, it doesn't really make sense to have that narrative. And, um, and so I always just find it funny that some fans ask about that because to me, it just, I just find it quite confusing. So that, but yeah, going, I'm sort of stepping away from no, Arsenal talking generally no, I, about football. I think that's a really good way to look at it because also it's, as you say, it's quite, in a way, it's quite self-explanatory how you judge your manager. It's sort of on results. And if they're doing well, then, you know, they're doing well and everyone's happy. If not, then uh, within their rights to, to draw criticism. But there are other sort of intangibles that you can judge them on. And I think, you know, you might as well because at the end of the day, there's only so far you can go when backing a manager based on results, you might as well sort of get involved with the kind of, well, what, what else is he doing? What else is he bringing to a club? And I think for Arsenal fans, that's that's a big thing because we know how big Arsene Wenger was for sort of cultivating that, that atmosphere. And James, you probably know best than we do. And now some of that kind of, yeah, I mean, I, I enjoy watching Mikel Arteta's press conferences. I know he can be a bit short and, and succinct and to the point sometimes, but like, you know, I feel that connection between him and the players and as a result, then me between the players a bit more and just with the club, it, it feels like everything's a bit more in place. But yeah, James, did you have any sort of any thoughts on any of that um, before we sort of tie up the uh, Arsenal-Burnley conversation and and sort of assess where we're at at the moment? It's actually quite funny to hear you say that you enjoy 
listening to Mikel Arteta's press conferences because where where I can see where you're coming from as a fan, as a journalist and editor, I find him deeply frustrating because he very rarely answers the question. And there's a lot of what we would term waffle, and we're always listening to those press conferences, thinking, right, how can we get a news line out of this? How can how can we write something interesting? And a lot of the time, it is it is just bland waffle. Whereas for an Arsenal fan, I can understand where you're coming from in terms of hearing all this stuff about how he's committed to the process and mm. this and that and the other. So again, that's that separation between being a fan and, and a journalist, which is sometimes quite, quite hard for me personally. But in terms of, I don't know if you wanted to touch on, am I, am I Arteta in or Arteta out? And the question is, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm as guilty as anyone, you know, from lurching to extreme positivity to, no, nah, this guy's just not got it. Or he's not quite ready for it. I think I'm very much on board with what he's trying to do with with the team and what how he's looking to restructure and, and, and rebalance, recalibrate the squad. But I think he's got a lot to learn in terms of his in terms of his man management and his hardline stance with with certain players and the way that he speaks so publicly about some some of their failings. I think I, I think that's only going to cut for so long, cut it for so long with some of these players. Sorry, I mean, even even going back to early, earlier this season, he was quite bizarre in something that he said about Emil Smith-Rowe out of nowhere, talking about his ha- his habits off off the pitch. And this was after he was like man of the match against Aston Villa. And it was like, why, why are you bringing this into the, into the public domain? Like, it's the type of thing that, that Wenger would, ne- would never have said. And he was sometimes guilty, obviously, of o- overprotecting his players. But there's there's definitely a, a, a balance to be struck there, I'd say. I was just going to ask James, going off of that, do you think that's a sign of his just inexperience as a manager and a coach, or do you think there's something deeper there? Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people have described him as Guardiola light. And um, I think a lot of it comes from, A, what he may have seen gone wrong at Arsenal in the latter stages of his playing career, mm. and B, basically trying to mimic what Guardiola's done at City, where if you do not buy into the culture, if you do not work your socks off, then you're just not getting in the team. But Pep Guardiola's won, you know, how many Champions Leagues, how many league titles at Barcelona and Bayern Munich. Like, it's a lot easier to get players to buy into that when you've got that track record. But if you're in your first job in management and you're only, you know, five or six years older than some of your more senior players then it probably takes a bit of a softer touch to get those guy those guys on board so yeah there's a lot there's a lot of learning and at the end, at the end of the day the guys extremely inexperienced like anybody who goes into any new line of work it take you know you can't you're going to make mistakes and it's just whether he can he can learn from those and adapt his his style along life's way i'd agree with all of that and i think as a fan who kind of falls on the side of i really like the way I see the ideas behind his his hardline approach and and sort of wanting that consistency across the board and and yes maybe he doesn't go about it in the, in the right way sometimes but largely I think you know his commitment to the club and I think that's that's another thing that sort of I pick up on his sort of demanding nature that you're you know you you as an individual are basically less important than the club and and everything should be committed to you know Arsenal and I think sometimes there are clashes there and and as you say there are certain characters who find themselves at Arsenal and have done over the last few years where maybe a bit more of a nuanced approach is required I mean we're seeing it now with club captain and everything else with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and it's I don't know it's um it's a it's a really bitter pill to swallow because we've been burned with with so many of these issues over 
over the years. I mean, I mean, since our test has come in, we've had so many of those examples, you know, the likes of Meza Ozil, and I know that was sort of ongoing before that. But James, did you, did you have anything to add on that? The way in which our test is going about its job and, and maybe touching upon the Abamyang situation? Yeah, I think um I think it boils down to the fact that as Arsenal fans, we're so desperate to buy into something and believe in something. I don't think any of us ever really believed that Emery was 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 the right man. He was just somebody who was coming to get us in to sort of steady things and maybe get us back into the Champions League just by dint of the fact that he was an experienced manager who'd done that thing at, at previous clubs. I think we're really desperate to buy into something with Arteta. We like the way he speaks and you know the the culture he's he's trying to to bring in. But also on the flip side of it, you know, and maybe this is down to the sort of people that I, the Arsenal fans that I follow on social media, I can also completely understand where they're coming from when they say, look, we've seen this guy in charge of the team for two years. What tangible progress has there been? We're still not scoring goals. We're still not really controlling games. We're persisting with players who we know are plainly not good enough. We're getting rid of players and not getting market value for them. The same mistakes are, are, happening, are happening there. So I think, yeah... As much as we want to, to buy into it, I think this, this is going to be a crucial run of games now. There really is. Once they come back from Dubai, we should have a pretty much, regardless of who we managed to bring in in the, la- in the last week, you know, we're going to have a pretty fit, healthy squad. We've only mm. got 17 games left. There's no cup distractions. There's no European football, really. Top six is the absolute minimum. And if we don't deliver that, I think he will stay anyway. But it would be hard to justify. Yeah, I was just going to say, going off of that, James, this is this is really crunch time, I think, for Arteta and his relationship with the Arsenal fan base. I sort of am in the same camp that you are. And I think even if we didn't finish in the top six, he probably does still stay on. But I think he loses a lot of the sort of support he has from the fan base because without the cup competition, 17 league games in three odd months isn't a lot of football and you know this is this is his squad now this is his team he's you know two January transfer windows in a row we've seen with the exits you know Chambers Klasnich Mary um, Maitland-Niles Balogun's obviously a different story but he's gone out on loan last January Ozil Socrates Mustafi uh, Louise leaving, William leaving in the summer. He's really cultivated this to be his Arsenal squad. He signed six players in the summer. I have a feeling we'll probably sign one or two uh, towards the end of this window. And yeah, we can make the you know Arteta in advocates can uh, can make the argument and say, well, he's never signed a forward player, he's never signed a striker, and that's maybe the final piece of the puzzle. But by and large, now this is Arteta's team, and I. I think we've all seen an uptick in form since um, since those first three games in the season, and we've all seen clear progress on the pitch. But you know, it's really imperative that he keeps this run of form going. And actually, if it drops off and we end up finishing in seventh place, or or even if we finish in sixth place and we're miles behind, let's say Spurs and and United, it's it's it won't be good enough to to keep this goodwill going much longer. Yeah, I think a lot of people going into this season, I don't think anyone was really expecting to finish in the top four. I think what we wanted was for these young players, you know, sort of supported or upheld by senior professionals and uh, experienced heads to try and sort of, you know, progress on two successive eighth place finishes and, you know, back into Europe, aim number one, number two, get closer to the top four. And largely, I think, 
irrespective of other teams deficiencies and and lack of form i think you know we're we're on track to kind of have that as a possibility and like you both say it is crunch time there's not really any excuses now we've got a small squad we've got a streamlined squad but we've chosen to to act in a way that you know leaves us relatively short and we've also don't have any other competitions any distractions it's it's the league or nothing and it it has to kind of go well and and how we define well is obviously everyone has their own interpretations but you know we need to be keeping up with the teams around us we need to get european football again and we need to continue showing that you know these tangible signs of progress are becoming ingrained and becoming more consistent they're not just sort of the good moments and then oh we're back to square one where we're not creating any chances and all this sort of stuff which is still relevant but you know i think that is the thing that we need to see. We need to see this upward trajectory of the last few months mainly continue. And there'll be some people who say, look, this last month, we've not won a game. We have we've barely scored any goals. Or have we scored like one goal or something like that? And some people say, look, this is another sort of scathing example and reflection of why we are in the wrong hands and we don't have a good enough manager and he should be getting more out of the players. But then some people say, well, look, he's doing it with the bare bones and these young players and they'll get better and we just need to back him more. And, you know, there's so many ways you can look at it. But I think once everyone's back recovered, we hopefully add a couple more bodies in this window and, you know, we we, we continue to play well and, and then we get to the summer and we can reassess. And, and obviously there's the, the issue of, renewing Mikel Arteta's contract, um, which has sort of come up uh, in, in the papers recently. I don't know if, uh, James, you, you know anything about that, but, you know, we, we also know that uh, he was with Stan Kroenke to watch an LA Rams game during during the week. So I wonder whether the idea of his contract was raised or, or what that meeting entailed, because it's not, we haven't really seen him. I know there's been COVID, but we haven't seen him go over and, and speak directly to silent Stan. That would be interesting. But yeah, I, I agree with both of you that, to regard this as a successful season we need to get back into Europe and we need to show that we can compete with the teams around us which is largely what we've been doing but it's not wholly convincing yet and I think these run of games if we do what I think as Arsenal fans we want play well not going to get all the results but compete and there's a style that's going to continue to improve and these young players are going to improve with it hopefully we can add a couple of bodies in in January. Was there anything that either of you wanted to add before we have a look at the the transfer window in general? I think yeah, yeah the only thing I was going to add is that you know it's brilliant having all these great great young players coming through, but at the end of the day, as committed as they are to Arsenal, they're going to be want, wanting to play European football as well. They're going to mm. want to play in the Champions League, and it won't be long if we're still mucking around in sort of seventh, eighth place that. You know, unfortunately, the, the bigger clubs are going to come call, calling for them. You already saw pretty tellingly, I thought, after the uh, Carabao Cup semi-final, Klopp very pointedly waxing lyrical about Martinelli. Didn't like the sight of him hugging Saka after no. after the first uh, after the first leg. You know, as as much progress as we are making with these young players, unless we do get some form of tangible success and get back into the Champions League, they're 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 going to go. So there's that that's the worry. And I think just, just in terms of this this season, the decision that is basically going to define it for us is, is the decision to freeze out Aubameyang. If we don't get a replacement striker, no matter how he was playing beforehand, you know, would, would he have put, put away that chance that Lacazette had on Sunday? Probably. Mm. You know, it, 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 
did it need to be that black and white that the the latest disciplinary breach needed to result in him being exiled forevermore? Could it have been handled slightly slightly differently? But yeah, it doesn't look like there's a way, there's a way back from him now. And I think if we don't get into Europe, that will be the decision that, that basically define, defines our season. Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about the elephant in the room because I think once it started happening and it was quite clear that there was an issue with the Bamiang, you know, Arsenal in a a rich vein of form we were scoring lots of goals it maybe looked as if we weren't gonna be adversely affected by his absence and look I, I, I've heard quite a few people say it and it, it's fact that you make a, as big a decision as this whether it's right or wrong it is the wrong decision if you kind of don't reach your goals so if Arsenal sort of tail off over the next few months then you know Arteta has made a bad decision and will be judged accordingly and could if we don't manage to shift Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in this window you know it's sort of his job is very much tied to this kind of strange dynamic but we haven't scored any goals in January and then we've got sort of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang regardless of you know his form over the last few months and and whether he's still got it but when you make that big of a decision and then you don't have a striker and 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 you're not performing it's you know you you've got to it's got to go well and um you know i i i have faith that that it will but i mean with with Aubameyang, i think uh, it's a big shame and and i i've been quite supportive of arteta weirdly in terms of you know i think as a as a captain for arsenal clearly for whatever reason for various reasons maybe there was something not quite right and the example that one sets to these young players these new players this new sort of trajectory is is so important i think and if he wasn't doing it properly not taking it seriously then yeah maybe there needs to be consequences but at the same time i think you know this exile and kind of uh toxic fallout it seems is is far too close to what we've tried to move away from and I think more more news, more information will emerge in due course about that, hopefully. But it it does seem kind of crazy that, you know, I heard Gunnar Blog mention it the other day um, on one of the Athletic podcasts that I think the the extension of this kind of fallout is was because of his reaction to being stripped of the captaincy or to his disciplinary breach. And apparently Aubameyang, you know, didn't respond too well to it, which you can sort of understand, but it's a weird one. Johnny, did you, where do you stand on the Aubameyang thing? Because I know he's he, he holds a place dear in your heart and to a lot of Arsenal fans, I think. Yeah, I mean, we were saying last time we recorded, or I was saying it, it was very sad as the feeling I had because I'm a big Aubameyang fan. There's, there's very few players who I've enjoyed watching play for for Arsenal or score goals for Arsenal over the last few seasons than Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, whether that was sort of a hat-trick in the League Cup against quite a shoddy West Brom side earlier this year or, or in the Europa League semi-finals against Valencia. I just, I've really enjoyed watching him play and it seems really sad that his Arsenal career is going to end on such a negative note because really for two seasons, he... We were a one-man team. You know, he kept us afloat. He won the Golden Boot in um, in his first full season at the club. I mean, I remember him scoring on his debut against Everton and being like, oh, I can't believe this guy is playing for Arsenal with the pedigree he'd obviously brought over from, from Dortmund. And it was, um, and it, yeah, it's just a shame. I think I also mentioned I'd really been hoping that he'd be the next Arsenal centurion. And I think he's on 92 or 93 Arsenal goals. So I was like, thought, you know, he'll get there this season. But it just, 
it is, I think you're right, it must be to do with his response to, um, to being stripped of the captaincy. And, and look, I guess Arteta's view is he's got to set a precedent and we all know about his non-negotiables and they can't be negotiated. So he, he's drawn his line in the sand and, you know, Aubameyang's on the other side. And I just, I'm left with a feeling of sadness personally, but it's, but I can understand where Arteta's coming from. He's got his principles and he needs to stick to them because then it makes uh, a mockery of them if he doesn't. But it's, yeah, it's just any other way it could have ended. I would have rather him be, mm. you know, had a great season and then, Newcastle come in and sign him for 30, 40 million off of us or something. And then we get at least the capital um, to reinvest. But it's, yeah, you know, it's just another Arsenal captaincy that's, that's ended poorly. And, and, you know, I guess we move on from it eventually, but it's just quite yeah. sad in my opinion. And, and not just on the captaincy. I think, again, something that James mentioned earlier on, of uh, continuation and tendency of Arsenal to sort of let these assets these players kind of dwindle in value and then we end up getting nothing for them and I think that's testament to sort of the poor way in which the club's been managed over the last few years but you know when you think of Aubameyang and the contract we gave him and look we can say now from from where we're sitting now it was the wrong decision but I think most people at the time were thinking you know it's probably the right decision and we were sort of forced into it but it's a tough one and and people will sort of have different relationships to Abamyang and and sort of to Arteta's approach and and all of that sort of stuff, but yeah, I think it's a shame and it's sad and uh, I just for the love of God, just can we can we get over these uh, these captain strippings and disciplinary breaches and all this sort of stuff and just live in as one big happy family? But it doesn't look like it's quite going to happen just yet. James, did you have anything to add on that before we finish up for today? We'll talk about the January transfer window. I mean, yeah, just to echo your sentiments, really, that it, it, it is it is sad. I don't I don't think he's anywhere near the level of player he was when he first first joined us, but he's still definitely a striker that's capable of getting between sort of, you know twelve and maybe sixteen goals in a season if he's properly um, applying himself. I think he was frustrated for a while playing out on the on the left. And we weren't getting the best out of him there. And it wasn't really a position that was a natural natural fit fit to him in Arteta's system. But he was playing through the middle again this season. I thought maybe that would that would trigger um a return a return to form. But it did it, it looked like it might happen for a spell, but then it sort of sort of fizzled out again. But I, I just think, you know, you actually look at the teams around us and none of them really have a lethal striker. Probably, you know, obviously Tottenham have got Kane, but he's 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 not really wouldn't even say he's an out and out and out goal scorer. Lukaku's not really doing it for Chelsea. United don't really have one, um, and we potentially do. And he could have been a difference between you know some of these games that we've we've dropped points in this season and eking out a one a one nil win. And that you know obviously I'm saying that having having watched him play over the last couple of months and he's not not been at that level. But I just I just feel we're, we're slightly cutting our nose off despite our face despite our faces there. And you know the club were quite pointed in saying that it was repeated disciplinary breaches but you know from the details that have come out going abroad to visit your sick mother and spending an extra 12 hours over there and I know there were knock-on effects with COVID protocol and what have you it didn't seem to me as being the worst you know the worst offense it wasn't like he was out partying and you know inhaling 
helium balloons and drink driving and all, all that kind of stuff what i would term a minor disciplinary breach did it need this sort of cataclysmic mm. falling out and all that all that's end up, ended up happening is you know we're depriving ourselves of a really talented player and every time there's a negative result people are always going to point to the fact why is he why is he why is this guy not not in the squad and it's the same same with ozil a year 18 months ago whenever we had a game where we didn't create any chances it's like well we've got pretty much the best playmaker in the league on his day in the squad earning 350,000 pounds a week doing nothing so mm-hmm. it's a very brave ballsy decision from arteta but again the proof will be in the pudding if we finish in the top four or the top six. Without him, people will say it's the right decision. If not... Yeah, it's not. <laughs> I think just on that as well, to to draw that painful comparison between Meza Ozil and, and Pierre and Aubameyang. I mean, I was on Twitter today and, you know, highlights of our 3-1 win over Leicester under Unai Emery came up when Ozil had sort of an outstanding game, scored a brilliant goal. Um, was pivotal in the other goals, set Aubameyang up for one of them as well. And they were sort of celebrating together. I don't know. It, it's not quite the same as the Mesut scenario, but, you know, it's uh, uncanny in its similarity. And I think, you know, ultimately, I know that Arsenal fans, you know, I was a big Mesut Ozil fan and I, I couldn't quite get it. And and uh, I didn't understand why he was completely out in the cold. But ultimately, I guess... I don't know if that situation was managed well. It definitely wasn't. But I think uh, successive managers and, and the decisions we made by Ozil ultimately probably proved right in terms of like an assessment of his quality and where he was at and how he could still contribute. I don't know if if maybe you differ to me on that, but you know you sort of see him now at, at Fenerbahce. And yeah, I, I don't know if if the sort of mirage of, of Meza Ozil, maybe seeing him in training every day and he really wasn't the player that we thought he was. And, and I'm not saying Aubameyang's in that camp at all, but in terms of ultimately maybe the, the Meza Ozil th- issue ran its course and, uh, and that was a reflection of sort of how he could still contribute at Arsenal. I don't know what, what you might think about that sort of dynamic, James. Um, I just think it's a. It, I was actually think, thinking about that goal. I saw that goal the other day, and it just kind of sums up how quickly modern football moves. That mm. I think every player involved in that goal is now either gone or has been been exiled. I think it started with <laughs> Leno, who's obviously now been bombed out. Bellerin out on loan at, at Betis. Gwendouzi fell out with the manager, exiled. Ozil and Aubameyang. Just it's mm. <clears throat> it's very it's very. It, just very strange. I think um, it's never really fully come out the Ozil thing. What actually went went on there? Because it was bizarre. He was he was a mainstay in the team when Arteta first took over. Then COVID mm. came. There was the stuff about the the pay cut and him offering to pay Gunasaurus his wages, which is one of the most embarrassing things in a long line of embarrassing things that have happened over the last the last couple of years. I mean, I, I wasn't as big a Ozil fan as a lot as a lot of people were. Like on his day, genius, but those those days were too few and far between as far as, as far as I was concerned. I think he was we did need to move away from that, and he had such a sort of cult following mm. um, as well, which I think was, was was particularly unhelpful. But again, like we said before, it's just another example of just mismanaging a, a, a key asset who who could have a been useful in terms of taking us to, to where we wanted to go and be just in terms of recouping some actual money and being able to reinvest it, reinvest it in the team. I think just, just tying up on the Aubameyang thing, I think the the only reflection that I'd take stock in is the fact that 
you know, we know that Aubameyang, I think, is largely a popular figure in the dressing room with the players and stuff. And it, this kind of subplot, and I'm sure it is a big distraction. I, everyone would rather not be dealing with it, but it doesn't look as if it's affected the players. We know that he's very close with some of the some of the guys, uh, Lacazette especially, and and the young players as well. But they seem to have not that it's sort of Aubameyang or Arteta. You choose one side or the other, but these players don't look like they are particularly concerned by you know the the manager's sort of treatment of Aubameyang um, which I think is maybe an encouraging sign just in terms of like you know they've bought into the project and uh, see that things can still go well and and that's good but let's let's move it on and Johnny tell us what what's what what's happening in the transfer window and then James is going to give us his uh, professional professional insight into the market and and who Arsenal are going to sign before uh, the deadline de- deadline day in a few days Johnny oh. <laughs> take it wow. away <laughs> well, well, I guess the weirdest thing, or you know, timing-wise, is what five minutes before we jumped on air, Chambers was announced as a as a Villa player. It's another player gone that that sort of came out of nowhere. It was it sort of caught me off guard in a way that no transfer has since Aston Villa signed Danny Ings about six <laughs> months ago, and which also came out of nowhere. And then before that. I think we signed Matty Ryan on loan from Brighton last January. There was almost mm. no um, sort of reporting on that. Although I actually remember mentioning to you, I think in Edinburgh, Steen, that we were going to sign him and no one was really talking about it. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, it's been a weird transfer window in general, actually. I was speaking last week. Yeah, last week I was actually speaking to an agent, a football agent I know, asking him what his thoughts were on the window so far and how he's been able to do any business or if he, if he even has been able to do any business. He was sort of just saying, look, bar basically Newcastle, Aston Villa and Everton, there's no real money moving between clubs at the moment. And that, you know, for an agent that deals primarily in sort of the championship and the lower leagues, the knock-on effect is such that it's really hard for clubs to do business, especially in this sort of post-COVID transfer market that we're, we're now operating in. From an Arsenal front, I think it's been hugely frustrating. We obviously sort of had this long pursuit of Vlahovic and I was never convinced we were ever going to sign him personally. It was always, seemed to me, similar to the way that Manuel Locatelli played uh, played Arsenal to get his move to Juventus. I think this was the exact same sort of bait-and-switch um, move and he has now agreed terms with Juve very quickly and a fee has been agreed very quickly, so there was never a real hurdle to that deal. Matt Turner will be an interesting signing that looks by far the the closest to getting done from an incomings perspective. I think we desperately need a striker. A midfielder, you know, we've touched upon, we've only got 17 games left. I think if we have these sort of a central midfield core of Xhaka, Elneny, Partey and Lokonga, that should in theory be enough. You've got Patino there who you can blood five, ten minutes into a game if we're winning 2-3-0 and Erdegaard's dropped deeper. So I'm not that worried about signing a central midfielder in this window. But yeah, a striker would, would be would be really, really nice because I think without that, we we can write off any hopes of, of top four. Those are my thoughts just in general. I don't know, James, what, what you've been thinking or what you know about the window so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I again, would sort of, concur with what you're saying saying then I always had a feeling that this January window 
not just for Arsenal, but in general, is that there was going to be a limited amount of, of movement. You've obviously got, you know, uncertainty at United in terms of what their long-term plans are for Ragnik and whether he's going to going to stay on. They were, I think, unwilling to bring players in that would then be forced upon a new a new manager. Chelsea's squad is enormous, <clears throat> enormous anyway. And other than maybe some cover at, at wing back, they didn't really need anything pressing. City are just utterly relentless you know I don't know how how they've managed to do what they've done without basically having a striker for for 18 months and Liverpool thought possibly maybe they might look to bring somebody in in, uh, to cover for Salah and Mane while they were at AFCON but I think they'll they'll keep their powder dry until until the summer essentially anyway Um, and then for clubs like Arsenal it's it's difficult do you essentially pay over the odds for that position that you need in January that might take you to fourth place or you know whatever it is we're, we're aiming for but then risk getting somebody who actually you don't necessarily want for the for the long-term future and wait wait until the summer like you say that the, the I, again I kind of agree with you on the midfield situation like I do think that's something that we could look to upgrade on significantly in the summer I know the talk of Douglas Louise who Arteta knows pretty well um, he was at City for a little bit um with him, so he's well aware well aware of that. So he might look at the Chambers thing to Villa and think, maybe, you know, maybe there's conversations that have gone on gone on there as well. But again, I don't really see that happening until until the summer. And then, the, you know, obviously the obvious thing that we need is a striker. But I just don't I don't see that obvious natural fit. I think Isaac is somebody who they who they've looked at before. Talk that Ed, Edu is a big a big fan of his, but he's not prolific by by any stretch of the imagination. I was even looking in the, the championship uh, the other day. I was wondering if there was anybody sort of lurking in there who we could, who we could take. I do like the, actually the look, the look of um, Brozier, the guy who um, mm. Southampton uh, brought in from Chelsea. He looks at a real, real handful, real prospect. Um, and there was talk of Southampton sort of look, looking to pay about twenty-five million for him and sort of test the water with Chelsea, Chelsea there. But whether they, whether that would be someone we'd be interested in, or whether Chelsea would even sell to us, is is a, is a is another matter. But there's no there's no real outstanding candidate, I'd say, that's on the market at the moment who I'd be like, oh yeah, we've got we've got to break the bank to get him. Yeah, no, I was just sort of wanting to go off what you were saying. Mentioned a few names that I found very interesting. I think Isaac and obviously Jonathan David, Dominic Calvert-Lewin have been the other two names that have really emerged since the Vlavic links have been been deaded or the talks have been have been deaded. I, I've, I've always liked the look of Isaac personally. I think while he's not by any means prolific now, the thing you are doing if you sign a sort of 22-year-old Isaac or someone similar is you're sort of betting and hedging that they will become prolific because strikers really more than most positions won't hit their peak until their later 20s. And so you're you're sort of hoping that if you get everything in place over the next few years, he can go and on to become a sort of 25-plus goal-a-season striker. And, you know, obviously, you know, Zerdegaard from their time at Sociedad together. I, I really enjoyed actually watching Isak personally in, in the Euros as well for Sweden. But it's just, like you say, this market's so tricky because you're guaranteed to be paying above market price for a player, especially when every other club knows that you've exiled, you know, your best finisher and your highest paid player. You're not exactly keeping your cars close to your chest 
uh, in a window where sort of discretion is is undervalued. It's going to be tough to do a deal, really tough, unless it's sort of right, 75 million gets taken to the bank of La Liga and Isaac's released from his um, buyout clause like we did with Thomas Partey. I don't really see how a deal is structured for one of those top sub-24 European strikers such as David or, I mean, DCL is definitely not going anywhere in January with with Everton just about to bring in a new manager. So it's going to be, I have a feeling it's going to be quite a painful last four months of the season from a, from an attacking or an offensive standpoint. But yeah, Steen, I don't know if you, what your thoughts are on the window. It's clear that, you know, there's an unfortunate stat doing the rounds at the moment that uh, Harry Kane had more shots in January than Alex Lacazette has had in the entire season or something like that in the Premier League. And it... <laughs> it kind of just does drive home the need for an upgrade. I I get that, you know, we really do need a new striker and and I'm sort of assuming that the Aubameyang thing is set in stone and he will be out of the club quite soon because I don't think you can keep him around if you've, if you've made that decision. Uh, you can't sort of let that fester any more than it already has. But I think, again, James's point earlier in the show where he was talking about the fact that, you know, with Chelsea, the guys who are getting the goals, it's not necessarily Romelu Lukaku uh, at City. They don't really have a centre forward. United, I mean, yeah, they've got Cristiano Ronaldo, but he hasn't been scoring the goals of late. Uh, Liverpool, obviously, Salah and Mane. But, you know, you need someone who sort of facilitates your players, your wide players, and where our strengths are in this team. You know, the likes of Martinelli and, and Saka and uh, Smithrow, Erdegaard perhaps. And that's when Lacazette was doing the job really well. Uh, in December, he had the physical energy to kind of support these guys and he was doing a job, the sort of dirty work and and maybe not scoring as much, but the other guys were. So it doesn't really matter about your forward scoring loads of goals. He's doing the other things. But I think we can see clearly that Lacazette, you know, he's going to be crucial to us up and until the end of the season, but he's not a long-term option. He is probably, you know, if he plays one game a week for the rest of the season each week, he can probably just about do enough to maybe get us to, I don't want to say he can get us to where we want to go, but, you know, it wasn't long ago that we were playing really well and we were thinking, right, well, you know, until the end of the season, maybe Lacazette's going to do the job. But I think just because the Aubameyang thing has become very clear and we think Nketiah is not up to it and is also out of contract and so is Lacazette. The need to kind of push forward the plans to sign a striker from the summer, if there was an opportunity to do it in, in January, then we'd do it. But as you, you say, Johnny, I, I, I don't see us signing Dominic Calvert-Lewin. We're not going to sign Jonathan David. I don't see us breaking the bank for Alexandre Isak. I never thought that we'd sign Vlahovic. So unless we sign a second striker... Uh, I've seen a few links to a few guys. I think one of them from PSV, but he's just signed a new contract uh, today, I think. Um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Cody Gappo. Yeah, I think he signed a new long-term deal with PSV today. Luka Jovic has been mentioned on loan, but I don't think there's any legs to that story. I don't think uh, Lacazette and Nketiah are enough for Arsenal to maybe finish in the top four. And and God forbid, if Lacazette were to get injured, you know, then where are we left? So I think in terms of forward, I'd love to sign one, but it's looking less and less likely. Uh, but who knows? Look, maybe maybe something will happen out of nowhere and, and a like to the Callum Chambers deal. And then in terms of central midfielder, um, just before we finish up then, we've touched upon a few names. Douglas Louise, maybe a summer. I think he he probably features quite high on our list. I know Ruben Neves as well. But again, that would probably be in the summer. It's very hard to try and navigate these deals mid-season when all these players are sort of important to the teams in, in the top flight. 
So I think that's why the Artemelo links made sense because he wasn't playing that much for Juventus and it could have been a short-term fix, but that looks like it's not going to happen because they demanded a certain period of time and an option to buy. And and I think, I mean, Edu was all for it, but apparently the Arsenal hierarchy went against it. So make of that what you will. Any other news or, or, or words on sort of further targets in, in midfield, Johnny? I was I was just going to mention just off of what you were saying about central midfielders. I also think, and this is why in my mind it just makes sense to leave that signing to the summer, is we all, you know, it would have been great to sign you know, someone for one month during AFCON while we were without party and Jack ended up missing a few games through suspension and on any. But if you bring in a Douglas Louise now or a Ruben Neves who both of them, I think, would be great signings, by the way. I, I've really been a big admirer of Douglas Louise since he joined Villa. I think he showed quite a lot of promise on, I can't remember where he was on loan at City. Was it Girona or somewhere? But he had a good loan spell as well. And But these, but either of these players will want to be starting week in, week out. And while you've got a Jacqueline party, I don't think that's realistic. And we need to move away from Jacqueline. I, this is definitely not the time to have the Jacqueline conversation. But there should be hopefully a natural sort of parting of the ways mm. in, in the summer and we can say goodbye to Jacques and if we can replace him with someone like Ruben Neves or, uh, or Douglas Ruiz, I think that would be really, really promising and progressive for our squad. But that, yeah, that's sort of me, me done on the transfer front for, for the time being. The only other final thing I'll add is I've just seen uh, the Athletic report that the Matt Turner deal has been, has been agreed and he will join the squad in the summer. So in the summer, interesting. Going to be joining now, which would perhaps mean that Leno is staying until the summer. I think that would probably also make sense. I know there were talks maybe Newcastle as well for Burnt Leno, but maybe it was again just January a bit difficult to do the deal. James, did you have anything else, anything final to add on um, on transfers in January and sort of what you make of, I guess, the business that Arsenal might be able to do, but also the business that they've done in terms of outgoings? Not in, in terms of, of uh, incoming. I, I just, like, like we've said, it, it's just an incredibly difficult month to do business, particularly when you, you've got a weak hand, the deficiencies in your squad are so obvious to, to everybody. In terms of outgoing players... I, I kind of trust Arteta's judgment there. Like, if he if he thinks that there's no need for for Callum Chambers, mm. um, you know, I think unfortunately he's one of these players who showed a lot of promise early in his Arsenal career, suffered at least at least one bad injury, and has never really threatened to get back to where he was. I think similarly, someone like Rob Holding, who will probably move on in the summer. I was a big Rob Holding fan when he first came into the team. I think he was one of our best players. Uh, during the first few months of Unai Emery's era, he got a, a very bad knee injury against United. He's never ever come back to to the sort of level that we saw when he first came in, into the team. So I kind of the players who Arteta wants to move on wouldn't cling to any of them desperately. You know, he's sad that it's not panned out the the way that it has for for a couple of them. But yeah, if we don't bring anybody in, then going back to what we were mentioning uh, earlier. Uh, this evening, I think the onus is on Arteta to be a bit more innovative with the players that he does have at his disposal. I'm not saying it would work by any stretch of the imagination, but Pepe's hardly played at all this season. Could he could he play up front in sort of like a false nine position? He would at least offer a bit of movement and a bit of a bit of pace. He did play there a couple of times very early on in his Arsenal career and looked relatively promising there. I just think Lacazette is never going to be a prolific goal scorer. Yes, he can do some of the link playing, but that's 
quite sporadic. I think if we don't end up with a striker, you know, Arteta's going to have to sh- shuffle the pack a little bit more than what, what he's been doing and, and can't just rely on that fixed starting 11, basically, for the, for the remaining 17 games. Yeah, definitely. Just finally, I mean, I'm just on the Arsenal squad page and it's it's actually quite crazy. I think, I mean, the one thing with Callum Chambers leaving, it's surprising, but it's also, I think we were surprised during the during the course of the season so far that Callum Chambers is barely ever on the bench, which is quite strange because he finished this last season quite strongly. So maybe this was sort of coming and he's only appeared more recently a bit because of our injuries and stuff. But I mean, it's crazy that we're sort of talking about uh, central midfield conundrums and I look at our loaned out players players list. We've got Lucas Torreira, Matteo Granduzzi and Ainsley Maitland-Niles on there. Three young midfielders, all sort of relatively defensively minded, all sort of contracted to Arsenal, but they're not playing for us. And I know that they're all individual scenarios, but it's quite ironic, isn't it, that we're sort of talking about signing someone, you know, who could maybe cover in the centre of the park. and, And we've got these three guys who are all sort of, you know, up and coming talents, maybe. Um, I think maybe with the with the Chambers thing, in my mind, that makes the prospect of William Saliba joining the squad for the next season maybe a bit more appealing, not appealing, more likely. I, I'm sort of very excited to maybe see him in an Arsenal shirt. But yeah, it's crazy. We've actually got quite a few loan players out there. But look, unless there's anything else that uh, is is uh, emerging on Twitter as we speak, I think we, we've covered plenty uh, this evening. And James, I'd like to thank you so much for for coming on to to that sums it all up. One of our one of our first uh, proper guests, so it's it's been a pleasure talking to you and and hearing your insight into the game and and what you do and the work. So I really appreciate your time today. Pleasure, anytime, anytime. And Johnny, of course, uh, pleasure as always. We'll we'll see you uh, we'll see you next week. You can find James on Twitter at James underscore Journo. Um, you'll see his work in the new Metro newspaper too and online I'm sure you can find Johnny on Twitter at Johnny Rosen one football transfer news on Facebook and football transfer news underscore official on Instagram I'm sure there'll be plenty of posts over the next few days if Johnny can keep up with all the crazy transfers that are going on a quick reminder that you can also find every episode of that sums it all up on Spotify and Apple podcast these days be sure to follow it on Twitter at that sums it all up and on Instagram that sums it all up pod we've got plenty of exciting things coming up thank you all for listening take care and we'll be back soon until next time take it easy goodbye that sums it all up.